Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. Do that, and no other shall say nay. The will of the individual is central to Thelema. But does the personal will take a back seat when you're required to devote yourself to caring for someone else? Or when others are dependent upon you? Today, my guest and I will be discussing Thelema in the context of such relationships. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love and your will. Thank you for uh, speaking together today. Yeah, so today we wanted to talk about, well, I mean, the way I'm thinking of it is parenting and Thelema, but I'm not sure if it's just parenting per se. Uh, How would you parse it? Um, so a lot of the ideas that we've been chatting about and can chat about today, they come up from the idea of the relationship of yourself and other Mm -hmm. and how will fits in there because it's now involving the will of two, possibly even more people. And so really, um, in that self other relationship, we have so many different roles we can fit in. It could be a caregiver. Um, it could be a caregiver for an elderly person uh, in a professional role or in a family role. Um, it could be a parenting role for a child. It could be being a teacher. Um, and so really, I guess, just uh, Thelema for people who live with others. <laughs> people with other people. And yeah, I think yeah, that's people. actually a legitimate discussion even beyond I mean, this is the obvious first place for it, like you're saying, the uh, uh, family and uh, caregiving and educating and and this sort of thing. But even just the question of um, being in a group versus being a quote-unquote lone wolf uh, is a big question in Talima, I think, Um, or at least uh, something that uh, people will probably tend to have on their minds. Um, Yeah, so about the idea of the lone wolf... Uh, it's certainly something that I can relate to. Uh, we're both Aquarius, we found mm-hmm. out. <laughs> and so with that, there's something about the independence, the autonomy. So on top of that, people who tend to go into an interest with magic, specifically not just occultism, where it might get more just on the bookshelf, but magic, assuming people want to practice something, it can be tied up with the self-help angle. It can mm-hmm. be tied up self-development, the optimizing your potential. And so when you're into optimizing who you are, uh, there can be a lot of self-centeredness, a lot of self-focus, a lot of Mm self-orientation. And so things can become complicated here uh, considering the attitude toward the self existing in the world of a person who might be earlier in their path uh, compared to someone who might be an initiate, might be 
uh, further along up the tree uh, who has been considering uh, considering the idea of what does it mean to develop yourself, considering that from different angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to wrap that up, the lone wolf might find they've just been spinning around in circles in their own self-pursuit after a while. And how small or how large can that circle be if it's just circling around yourself and your own interests? Uh, there gets to be a point where you might realize you're actually just chasing your own butt. Uh, and how far can that take you? And so if that circle is quite small and limited, um, but you're trying to develop your own potential and you feel very comfortable just by yourself doing it the way that you figured out, um, well, it's a big question. How much capacity do you really truly have? How much capability do you have? And is it possible that your next step actually involves learning to work with other people? That seems like a very important question because it is a lot easier and it's also appropriate at the right times to take yourself away and separate yourself in order to work on yourself and in order to um, essentially create a laboratory in which you have some kind of uh, semblance of control over the the elements that you're working with. I mean, this is obviously part of the, the alchemical process, really. But... As you're saying, a big part of that process is then also to come back into interaction with others and that sort of thing. And that's not an easy thing to do, as much as it may seem, you know, noble to go off and be by yourself. It's probably going to be an oscillation. You're probably going to need that isolation for periods of time and then coming back and actually bringing what you've learned or what you've developed back into society with you. And then going through the alchemy of uh, dealing with other elements around you that you have no direct control over, that's mm-hmm. that's a whole new stage in the game. Uh, are you uh, familiar with the author and psychologist Robert Keegan? He's written a book called The Evolving Self. This Robert sounds familiar, Keegan? but uh, no, not directly. Because uh, what you're saying um, is directly the exact model that he is writing in Mm -hmm. and um i've discovered him uh uh, only a few months ago but he's certainly become a really big cornerstone for my own uh thinking and next steps um and so i'll give a little bit of a summary of of the book i've read by him but i will first say a bit about you know what position is this author in so he is apparently uh the dean of the Harvard Department of Developmental Psychology. And when he describes this, he likes to add that developmental psychology apparently didn't even have a department in Harvard uh, or maybe many schools. It's often being kind of looked down upon uh, Mm. in the psychology field. And so the next thing is, why would I reference his academic stature? Uh, I love reading. Um, I've read a lot of books from a lot of You say you're an Aquarius. (laughs) <laughs> and well, I started to really appreciate um, the position where a person's coming from, uh, because as a person who's done thousands of hours with different uh, patients or clients or um, you know people who are seeing him as a therapist, but also educating and teaching, uh, this is an individual who has a very informed perspective. Mm-hmm. I've read the book by him, <laughs> so I'll try, and, uh, I'll try and just relay what I've read. Uh, so what he believes is that um, we are an evolving creature, 
We're an organism that exists as an individual, but in an environment. And the inv individual and the environment are actually participating together in the process of evolution. Mm -hmm. Process of evolution very specifically requires developmental stages of learning how to separate and then learning how to integrate. Mm -hmm. This can be really clearly related with the tree uh, where people can be separating or like the salve and coagula. Mm -hmm. So you bonding together on one side, you have Venus as this connection with the other, as the belonging in a group, as the culture of art, etc. You have Jupiter above this as law and tradition, and the whole very idea of joining into an existing group and taking up the, the memory of what's been there before. But you also need within that organization to have some kind of new growth, new development. Mm -hmm. So then you end up with your sulfur, uh, side of things so that the salt, that fixed pattern doesn't become too fixed forever. It can be broken up uh, to be given new life or to clear off the extra husks and the extra, you know, crud that's building on it. Mm -hmm. Going back to Keegan, um, a baby starts out and they are just existing. They don't even necessarily have a sense of themselves as separate from anything else. This is like your new wheat, a chapter of mm -hmm. Liberal, where it's one and one and one and, and maybe none because <laughs> how can you identify an object. Uh, yet the baby starts to recognize things like its mother, who, you know, there's the classic thing of good breast, bad breast. Oh, the mom's here and they're so enjoyable and now they're gone. Uh, I'll mention in our more modern age uh, with baby formula, it could also be that dad is here or gone. It's the caregiver, mm -hmm. the person. Uh, but then the child is integrated with that. And then after a while, it starts to recognize things like uh, its feeling of hunger or that twitch in its arm as it jerks out and spasms because a baby's learning to recognize its nervous system. It starts to recognize those things. So they become an object that seems to be outside of or separate from the baby. So what happens in Robert Keegan's model is at each stage, your former identity now becomes an object outside of yourself that you can actually speak of, think about, and navigate with. Mm -hmm. And so as you develop your consciousness, what you have identified with as yourself now becomes not you. It was a tendency of that phase of development. So what happens in the development is the baby needs to start recognizing, oh no, those reflexes, etc., are not me, and it separates from them. Then at some point, it needs to develop an ability to play with us. It needs to be integrating. It needs to become part of a group. And babies very frequently, well, children, young children often go through this thing where there's um, stages of play. And an, uh, ch a younger child can do what's called parallel play. Well, they'll be with a child of their own age, and they'll each be playing beside each other, but they're not really interacting. And so there gets to be a point where they actually start to take on roles. Mm -hmm. And now they are together performing those roles. So then what happens is the role starts to be seen as outside of yourself and you're separating again. Mm -hmm. 
and you go through stages. I'm not going to try and lay out his entire map. Anyone who's interested can look into it. But the idea is there that you're you're separating. So you get to a point where your interdependence with people, like, like, oh no, what's so important is that they're gonna be so upset. They're gonna want this from me. They're gonna and wait a minute, this is what's important is the others expectation of yourself so people can actually exist in a form of consciousness where where they're the way that they're thinking happens the priorities that they have the images they're form in their mind of what happened or what's going on um, these things can all be framed as if they're seeing themselves from outside that's really interesting they're seeing themselves like oh no, what my teacher thinks of me. Oh no, what my mom thinks of me. Oh no, what my friend thinks of me. And so it's possible that to become an adept, much like in this stage to become an adult uh, or in this model to become an adult, uh, there is a process of finding that center within yourself where it is you yourself who's navigating through the various different experiences. And so on the tree of life, you have... Tifereth, once again, centered. And to think about that, you know, it's been centered in Yesod, it's been centered in Malkuth. And so anytime you're entering that centered consciousness, but then you can veer away like, now I've got to get more into defining myself in contrast. Mm-hmm. How am I different from others? And then you go, wait, how am I similar? How am I in common? So anyways, there, um, I think there's some food for thought in that. Uh, yeah, that's and- really cool. It's uh, the the whole idea of like seeing things in a subjective way versus seeing things in an objective way, and this seems to be really tied into a lot of the mystical practices that mm. we'll be looking at with the Lima or any other occult. Um, there is something I'd like to add to that, which is that in this model, there's also a deep recognition of the role that the caregiver would be giving. And I'd say caregiver this way as in the person who might be there, like I'm the adult and I'm here with the child. I have to be responsible to some degree because I, you know, I've been around more. I've seen a few more things and I should be able to understand how to, how to be here for this kid. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that person is directly participating in being the child's environment Mm and be students environment and being the environment of the person who came to you in the moment of need you're there as their environment and so you are being changed by the experience as well and if you don't take a moment to recognize where the student or the child is and you kind of expect things of them that are not even yet in their realm of what they could even think about or do like i'm not going to ask a a two-month-old baby to start jumping jumping up and down. It's just not capable. And so there needs to be a recognition in yourself of what the other may be even capable of or what their form of consciousness might even be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think what sparked off this uh, uh, discussion initially was along the lines of like, where is your role, especially thinking in terms of as a Thelemite, uh, what is your role in, for instance, bringing up children where you want to empower them to be able to do their own will, but then you also have to be some kind of a disciplinary figure in their life. And you have also your own concerns as an individual 
and the concerns of the others in your family or in your circle and that sort of thing. So it's a bit of more dynamic interaction than just something as simple and straightforward as, oh, yeah, I, I want to raise my kids to be able to do their own will, which is wonderful mm-hmm. to say, but it's putting it into action is a different experience. Certainly, certainly. Uh, and so within that, there's also questions about, um, well, what is your will? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you behave in a way like so if you've just put it as your 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 goal like i'm gonna raise a child who can live their own will okay well how do you do that mm-hmm. and that's what a lot of the existing literature about uh ed- education in philema that's really its focus is how do you approach like what's your philosophy of teaching um and so another angle though that i've noticed isn't yet explored as much is what does it imply for you yourself mm-hmm. as the teacher? So I think actually, you know, it might be worthwhile uh, to ground this in just the most basic precepts of Thelema and do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. And uh, in a chat earlier, you suggested um, thy hast no right but to do thy will. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact wording, but something like <laughs> do that. No other shall say nay. Mm-hmm. And uh, doing, uh, I mean, this might seem like, uh, for instance, if you were found yourself in a position where you are um, becoming a caregiver, uh, or find yourself in a position where you are expected to be a caregiver, or stuck in a role of being a caregiver, or whatever the case may be, um, you could. You could be looking at things in terms of that self-centered aspect, which isn't necessarily a bad aspect, um, and weighing that against the feeling that you are giving up uh, yourself by having to um, give care to somebody else or take care of you know somebody else's needs and that sort of thing. It's like your it's like a one or the other kind of situation in your mind. That could be the situation that you find yourself in. And if we look mm-hmm. at the idea of um, uh, thou hast no right but to do thy will, do that and no other shall say nay. This doing your will, at least in Crowley's estimation, is not such a simple thing as just doing what you want, of course, as we know, and uh, it's not as simple as um, just being selfish. It's It requires a lot, like he really emphasized the discipline, the self-discipline that came with being able to do your own will, and mm-hmm. uh, even to discover what your will is without just lying to yourself or uh, deluding yourself or anything like that. Mm-hmm. A term that can fit for Crowley's um, sense that you need to understand who you are and keep checking in. A good term might be equilibrating because mm-hmm. it is uh, perpetually checking in. So you yourself are going to be going through different stages of growth and change as an individual. And so in uh, some rituals, like, for example, the Golden Dawn ritual, there is a purification in the temple. And this can be approached in a psychological way. I do want to add just as a, a bit of a tangent. I've been 
pretty interested in ancient histories recently, and I've been reading up uh, about the priests of ancient Egypt and what the actual temple practices were like. And mm -hmm. apparently there was, and there still is in temples around the world, uh, a purification mm -hmm. process. Uh, but it seems to be a physical process because dust is accumulating. There's a physical sculpture, shrine that's there, the, the material form for the God's embodiment. Mm -hmm. And there's physical cleansing away. There's a physical changing of the clothing uh, because dust and grime can accumulate. Uh, and so in our modern readings, it can be uh, interpreted a lot more psychologically as you going into your pursuit as a teenager had ideas about what it's going to be, had needs. And as you get further along, the ideas that you had and the needs that you had could become old and outdated. And so there needs to be a purification process if you're going to keep um, responsive to life instead of reactionary because of holding on to these old ways of being. Mm -hmm. So the purification happens. Now imagine a person has started a teaching career and they've been working towards this and now they're there, they've made it, they've got it. Uh, well, they're so deep into it, they don't even notice what's happening. But after a while, once they've gotten into it and they're in a groove, they might have the moment to take a breath and look around and then get the sense, where am I? The me that wanted to get here has just been lost in the activity of this constant motion, the struggle has been constantly churning away. But now that I can rest, I'm in a moment of pause, I can look back a little and I don't know who I am anymore because in this type of job, it's so focused on offering to the other people it's so focused on anticipating what their needs are. Um, and so that your own self can disappear. Mm -hmm. So if that gets combined, I'll, I'll share a little bit of my own uh, life circumstances because I've been a teacher now for 15 years professionally. And before that, uh, on my resume had a lot of teaching on it that I didn't plan for, but those jobs kept coming my way. So I've probably been teaching uh, professionally now for about 22 years, um, but, but a full-time career teacher for 15. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've also got a two daughters. So the first is now four years old. Uh, so for the past four years, I've been in a situation where very, very quickly, because I had kids a little bit later in life, and then the home that we were in was going to have a lot of condo construction around it, and we had to move. It was everything all at once. It was moving with a pregnant wife who's, and I, I want to root this now in, in Crowley, in the introduction to the theory of magic. So magic and theory and practice, you get your chapter one. Okay, magic's the art of causing change in conformity with will. Then it goes on. It's like you can change any object. You just got to make sure that the object is understood for what it is and that you're applying the right kind of force and the right degree in the right direction. Mm -hmm. well, I'm not going to ask a pregnant woman who's a month away from having children to lift heavy boxes. It's not suitable <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so it's a type of situation where you have to think about 
who are you here and what is it that your role is? What do you offer? And my role in that situation was to be the muscle. Uh, and so it's like tons and tons and tons of stuff going on. Okay, well, think about my ideal magical practice. I'm sitting in the temple on top of the mountain and it's a huge open sky and I'm surrounded by marble pillars and I've been meditating for the past three months leading up to this moment. Anyone who interacts with me is because I wanted to. <laughs> I don't really have to. Oh, I just have it all my own way, right? I'm just a perfect ascended master in my own little world of what? Like, who has that? <laughs> so you exist in this reality. And so being there now in this position where it's like, okay, I've just finished my day. Well, how did my day start? I wake up pretty early. Well, my daughter would always find a way to wake up a bit earlier. <laughs> there's just a difference about being dragged out of bed versus having woken up early. So the day starts about someone else being there needing me. Mm -hmm. And what I would try and do, because I was resisting, I was resisting the needs of the other. I was resisting accepting my role as a father in which I inherently am there in a caregiving role for the other or I'm a father who had a kid and wasn't involved. Which one do I want to be? I guess I still have the choice. Hmm. One of the two might be my will. If I've grown up in a long line of fathers and grandfathers who, you know, conceived and then wasn't around, that might be my model. And I got a question on a genetic, social, psychological level, is that my will? Hmm. Or is it my will to perhaps change that? Because who am I to say that that way of living is inherently wrong and inherently bad? I cannot say that the only way that a baby should be raised is with a present mother and father there. However, we live in a current moment in time where we're able to share so much information and do so much research and study. And I have that information available to me. And all of the information says that there's a massive difference in the life of children if they can witness the relationship between two healthy adults who take the time to communicate with each other and consider that child as a participant in the relationship together. Hmm. And so with all of those things going on, you know, my child is there trying to pull me out of bed at four in the morning. Am I there yet? Am I wise enough? in you know, this point in my life, have, I haven't gone through the experience yet. It's got to break me and reshape me. But it's my resistance to what's emerging from the other in the environment that is showing me where I am trapped within my own wants. And I am not truly accepting where the will of my life is heading. So I'm woken up at four in the morning after lying there pretending to be asleep for just, please, just five more minutes. And then it's on in the morning with the kid because my wife will be there during the entire day. So after I've done my commute, my day of work, and I get back, and hey, like I could be like, ah, you know what, I'll take 30 minutes just to go chill, do my own thing. Well, hey, if you live near a place like a cafe and you feel there's like third spaces that are open to you that you can sit and rest and go for it. But in my situation, it was like, I just want to get back home. And as soon as I open the door, it's thank God you're here. <laughs> because it's your turn now. <laughs> and so <laughs> then it's a situation of the battle of wills between the mother and the father, 
or I also want to just clarify for any people who are raising a child that's not in a, say, heteronormative environment of the two parents, I'll speak from the lens of my own situation, which is of a mother and a father. Um, well, first of all, when do we have the time to have the conversation to figure this out? We don't. We're strained all the time. It's a pressure cooker. And so you've mentioned alchemy. And oh yeah, like it's a cauldron. It's a <laughs> cauldron where you've got your time is compressed, your space is messy, and it's not your own anymore. And yourself, the thing that's there experiencing these events, you've lost sense of who you are. <laughs> so all of it is thrown in the blender and shredded. And so then at what point do I stop going for what I want? Because as a bachelor who had time to myself to, oh, yeah, I could uh, organize the home exactly how I want. I cook the exact meals. I eat when and how much I want. Um, well, how long can I keep living that way? Because that's my past identity. Is that really my will? Is that really my true will and who I am? Or is this a limited tendency that has taken form in a particular moment? At what point does that become the cleepoth? What point does that become the shells or the husk where there was some seed with life and potential and nourishment within it? But that season has passed. So that plant grew, it cast new seeds, and there's something else coming up now. It's a natural process. And so there I am trying to navigate it. And I think this is why we all go through crises is because you don't have your new self yet fully formed to even know what your situation is i think that's the interesting thing about uh parenthood is uh or even just you know as an individual getting older growing growing up through adolescence and everything is coming to the realization that uh parents who i suppose we all see as gods at some point in our childhood are actually just grown-up children trying to figure it out <laughs> huge moment for everybody it's like santa claus not being real i want to make a connection of of uh performing a ritual for example the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram involves often um casting or creating the image or recognizing or sensing the image the presence of for angels standing around yourself and generally, the teaching and instruction for this ritual is to imagine them very, very large. So how important is it for your nervous system, for your sense of comfort, for your sense of safety, to feel that you are in the presence of and connected with other people? And does that moment of the ritual, in the beginning, you might be getting a grounding within your own body. Oh, here's the top and the bottom and the sides of my body. Oh, and then here's the space that's around me. But imagine that you're existing in that space with nobody else. Nobody else. So if we can imagine a beginning of creation, maybe there is some pure creative potential that could do it all. It's everything. But how much potential are you truly expressing without the existence of an other? Mm -hmm. Then what is your experience with and of and perception of that other? Are you equally others to each other? Or are you the creator and they're always your mirror 
only. Um, and so that can unfold and unfold and unfold. But if you were just there, you know, oh, here's my body, here's the space. At some point, there needs to be the other around you. And so in that ritual, if those others are created as very tall, gigantic beings, isn't it maybe that feeling that you're missing from when you were that little kid and everyone was so big and giant? <laughs> and so there could be something in there of just um, offering images to your psyche to orient yourself, to recognize yourself. And these might be things that are inbuilt in our being. And so there gets to be a point where we need to think, okay, what is my will? Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So you have to know what your will is. And if you are a creature that inherently exists amongst others and with and in relationships with others, there can be a certain element in your magical growth to develop an enriched capacity of relating with that other and those others. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reminded uh, of a book called I and Thou by Martin Buber, uh, which I believe is a, a pretty uh, influential seminal text uh, in modern Kabbalah studies. I think written shortly after Gershom Sholem uh, opened the lid on, on Kabbalah as an academic uh, field, mm-hmm. where now the history, the study, translations are now happening, all of this. Well, I believe shortly after that, Martin Buber writes, I and thou. And the basic idea can be summed up. When you meet another person, do you respect and even sense that they are an infinite mystery? As an alternative, you can approach that other as an object. Oh, I know who you are. Oh, you're, a, you're an Aquarius. You got here. Oh, you know who that guy, you know what that guy is? He's a jerk. Oh, well, <laughs> there you go. You still have. And so the thing is, though, in the relationship in that moment, is there a sense when another person's speaking of, wait a minute, you might really truly have something new to say. And so I'm listening receptively and grateful for what you're offering in this moment. Or is it more like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me, let me have my turn. I already know what you're going to say. I the already know you. waiting for of your course. turn to speak. <laughs> so what level is the other objectified? And so um, if a person's performing a ritual and they're saying Ata, uh, a Hebrew name for thou, or you have Aleph and Tav, the first and last, um, well, it implies everything in between as well. And so to have that name to approach and engage with another person as, as thou, not you. I know who you are. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> the holy possibility. And so um, AI spun out quite a bit there, but we, we had an original. <laughs> it started from something. <laughs> well, you know, that's, uh, I mean, one of the things that was coming to mind when you were talking about engaging with being a parent and having children and and. Um, doing things for someone else and having to essentially feel like you're, um, it, it must feel like a form of restriction to yourself because you have to put yourself aside and it's kind of struggling with that relationship there. Um, I think, uh, I think it's a, the most natural thing in the world for us to objectify each other. And I'm mm. not going to say that in a way that, um, <sighs> 
says we should do just the opposite because I think just doing the opposite of everything is kind of insect thinking. <laughs> I think it's like, uh, I, th I really do believe in what you're talking about with really, um, listening, being able to actually listen to somebody and learn from them, regardless of whatever my preconceptions are of them. And I think that for me, it comes from more of a place of legitimately being interested in finding out, you know, it's like, it's sort of uh, the writer syndrome. There was a, a uh, time when I really believed I was going to be a writer or something like that. And I think just being an observer, being that person who's listening and, and absorbing things. So like if I'm talking to you, listening to what you have to say and really trying to understand your pers your experience of it rather than just making my assessments and mm -hmm. thereby objectifying you and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that because that's a, a lot of food for thought about the idea that we have to objectify others. Um, and I appreciate that it would be, uh, okay. Imagine a person says, no, the whole goal is you always have to think of the other as an infinite, uh, mass of potential. You can never, okay. So when you are ordering a coffee, <laughs> uh, and you're placing, um, uh, you know, something off the menu please do you want to because we're there for a specific role and exactly. so here's a challenge for a teacher or a parent is there are those teachers who don't necessarily have a sense of themselves as a cog in a machine Mm -hmm. Like I am here and I am the whole universe and oh geez, like the admin isn't giving me that perfect timetable. I can't believe that I have to serve the needs of the organization and institution that existed here before myself. <laughs> but I had all my own preconceived ideas about what it's supposed to be, and I want it to be the way I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. I can't go there and have these disillusioning realizations that I'll accept. No, I'm going to change it to be my ideal. You know, at what point do you go, no, I am here to be in this role. So the objects thing, again, I relate back to Crowley with the introduction to magic, because I realize at some point, if you're applying the proper degree of force in the right direction, well, mm -hmm. imagine with the uh, the caretaker in a building and I'm trying to ask them to have some architectural renovations done. I should maybe check in. How much access and control do they have over the budget? How much experience do they have with architecture and engineering? And who is going to listen to them in the chain of command to make these things happen? Uh, so if I walk through life just indiscriminately projecting whatever is on my mind that whoever's close and available it's a big waste of energy yeah so you, you know what <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the thing too uh, one of my favorite things that crowley continuously goes back to or at least maybe i continuously go back to it i don't know um you were pointing out you were directing me to some of the uh, chapters in uh, libra left uh for this discussion and one of them is the the one where he's talking about in the body, every cell is subordinated to the general physiological control. Uh, and he goes on to talk about the fact that each cell is doing its part for the whole. And we don't really care if each cell is happy or not. We just want them to be doing their job. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thalima on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. <laughs> <laughs>